Welcome to the Lean Health Tech Podcast, where industry professionals discuss trends and topics where efficiency, healthcare, and technology meet. My name is Taryn Shipley, and I'm your host. Our guest speaker today is Dr. Robert Good, who is a practicing internal medicine physician, past president of the American College of Osteopathic Internists, past chief medical officer at Health Alliance and Carl Health Medical Management, and clinical professor of internal medicine at the Carl Illinois College of Medicine. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Good. Thank you. You have a very unique perspective because you're not only a practicing physician, you don't only have experience in executive leadership on the healthcare side, but you also have the perspective of the payer side, the insurance world. So today we're going to talk about value-based care with that unique perspective. And first, I want you to define value-based care. What does it mean to you? So value-based care really evolves around quality of care that the provider delivers. It doesn't, it's not very much value if what we deliver isn't up to the best practice standards. The cost of care that we deliver, the efficiency of that care, and what does it mean to the patient? Patient also evaluates our care. So if we don't communicate well, or the patient cannot follow the type of quality value care that we want to deliver, then that's one edge of the three-legged stool that doesn't hold up well. So it's quality, it's cost, and it's value to the patient. Who are the players contributing to value-based care and this healthcare overutilization? Is it more so the patients demanding unnecessary tests and medications? Is it insurance companies requiring certain steps of care to ensure approval of claims? Or is it the providers being overly cautious to protect themselves from lawsuits? Healthcare is a team-based sport. Uh, it's based upon not only what providers and physicians do, but the whole healthcare genre of nurses and technicians and everybody involved in the care components. So it's it's administrators. It's it's really everybody, and we all contribute to inefficiencies which either decrease quality or increase cost or decrease the value to our patients. And so that in itself leads to those issues. Now, is it patients sometimes demanding things? It can be. As providers, as physicians, we need to give them the best advice we can. And if it's harmful to them, you know, first do no harm uh, is a major quality indicator. Don't do it. You don't have to have a gun to your head as a physician to fulfill something the patient is demanding that is potentially harmful to themselves. Uh, is, is it potentially insurance companies? Sometimes uh, insurance companies are trying to do things to improve the value of care because inefficient care costs them. And so they're trying to do things to decrease the care. But sometimes through that process, they increase the global cost. So I'm not just talking about what it may cost the patient at the front desk, but the global cost of the healthcare system uh, to our country, to our system. Is it providers that can, are concerned about the legal aspects of things? Yes. Although I will say that providing quality care and best practice care is probably the best way to protect ourselves against a libelous society. It's really all of the things you mentioned, uh, but it's it's all the steps in between in all of us that are involved in providing in some manner the care to the patients. 
So when you say inefficiencies, are we talking micro inefficiencies or are we talking inefficiencies that are costing thousands of dollars per patient? Well, there's inefficiencies that cost patients. And eventually the patients are the ones who pay, whether it's through the public health care system or whether it's through their insurance company. As Americans, while we pay for probably 50% of our health care through either Medicare, Medicaid, or some sort of public health entity, the other 50% is sitting there in private insurance, but that private insurance is also paid for by tax reductions in either insurance companies or in employers. And through that process, the government also is paying for health care. So it's, it's a global item that increases our overall cost. And eventually what happens is that we have to make decisions to make bad decisions and, and overutilize or, or not provide value-based care. And in that process, somebody else, somebody along the line loses care because there's only so many dollars in the pot. If we provide high quality care, high value-based care, we can improve the quality from way more people and the care we deliver to them. So the funds that are being, quote, wasted right now could be reallocated to provide better care for patients in the future? Sure. So even, I mean, administrative care is one area in America where we have more administrators per capita <laughs> in delivering care than other countries do. But some of that is related to the number of rules and laws that our legislative process develops in order to protect patients. But in the process of protecting them, we have to fill out paperwork and forms and, and meet the criteria, and that increases healthcare costs. Those are people that are part of the healthcare team doing the things that they feel like they have to do. So it's a complex uh, set of components that can affect the value that we deliver to our patients. It sounds very basic and easy to just say, let's provide value-based care, right? But you just described a pretty tangled web of things. So the question, how did we get here? It's like a 20-fold answer. There are so many contributing factors. It's not just a quick fix. That's correct. And, and so we end up with making rules and laws to protect people. That it may protect the minority of people, but it affects everybody and it affects us globally. And so it ends up, as you mentioned, about the liability of physicians who don't want to get sued. So they do things that they maybe know they test, they maybe don't need to order, but they also want to keep themselves out of any potential lawsuits. So they order something. Or a patient who wants to have all the tests they can to keep themselves healthy. Well, in the process, we find abnormalities, which maybe aren't clinically important. And we end up having to follow up those abnormalities, which adds to cost. I'm going to give you an example of a, a real life story where a patient goes to a local church parking lot where there's a, a wellness van. And as part of that, they did, you know, hearing testing and they did, you know, CT scan of the chest and they did an ultrasound of the 70-year-old male's abdomen. Now, there are standards to do those types of tests, best practice standards, one of which in screening for aortic aneurysms 
is somebody who has smoked a lot in their life. And, and this particular gentleman, he had never smoked. He didn't meet the criteria to have the test done, but they did it. He didn't have any auric aneurysm, but they found a little cyst on his kidney as they were you know, doing the ultrasound. They said, oh, you need a CT scan because you got this cyst on your kidney. So they do a CT scan. The CT scan shows a rather benign cyst on the kidney, but finds a mass in the liver. And they said, oh, you got a mass in your liver. You need to have a biopsy. So they proceeded to do a biopsy of his liver. Turns out it's a hemangioma, which is a big blood-filled area uh, that was probably genetic for this patient. And he starts to bleed. He gets admitted to the hospital with severe anemia and he gets four units of blood. The last unit of blood, he has a transfusion reaction. He has a transfusion reaction which now results in kidney failure, and he has to go on dialysis. What I'm saying is, is that a relatively simple and relatively inexpensive test ends up almost killing this patient, causing certainly great harm to him, and it didn't need to be done in the first place. That's a low-value test that resulted in injury in, in an effort uh, for something the patient wanted. Just an example of how we get into a sequence of events which increases healthcare costs and is not helpful, certainly not value-based to the patient. Providers are put between a rock and a hard place when things like that happen because they're tasked with getting high patient satisfaction scores, and that involves listening to the patient if they do want that, quote, unnecessary test. So do they do the unnecessary test and get their high patient satisfaction value, or they don't do the test and get a low patient satisfaction value? It seems like it's kind of a lose-lose. Yeah, you're certainly correct. We sometimes worry about those things. At the end of the day, in order to provide high-quality care, we follow the national guidelines that's been developed and make good medical judgments based upon experience. And in this case, that would have been something that you know, should have been done. We have to be careful that we communicate well with patients, explain to them the whys behind what we're doing. Yes, that takes time, but that's an important component to the value and the cost effectiveness and the quality of care we provide for people. So if I ask the question, what needs to change and why is it so difficult to change? The people listening today, what can they do to reduce the overutilization? What advice would you have for physicians, for healthcare leadership, for patients? Do what's right for our patients. Recommend what's right. Be involved in the infrastructure of healthcare in, in the decision-making bodies and the committees that make recommendations and quality evaluations. In talking with our colleagues, why do we do these types of things and what's the appropriate methodology? The medical literature is generally fairly clear about what the best course to proceed. The medical judgment part of it is much more difficult uh, because it involves not only the facts, but it also involves knowing the literature and being able to have that discussion uh, with the patients and the patient families. So I think that's one step, is that get involved in doing the right thing. When we can, we should be involved in helping insurance companies, you know, provide the right processes so that we don't have to 
hit our heads against the wall in trying to get prior authorizations. Those prior authorizations, by and large, are trying to help direct physicians and providers into following best practice standards. Documentation becomes exceptionally important. And sometimes we're a little bit lax in documenting our medical decision process in our medical records. It's more than just getting a history, recording a physical exam, but why did we do what we do and why are we making the medical decisions that we are? It makes it much easier for companies to go through the prior authorization process. And that also reduces the liability. You know, we can understand, we can talk about the moment why we made the medical decisions that we made in the best interest of the patient. So I caught three points there. The first was to trust the medical literature, rely on the doctor's expertise. They've been through years and years of training. So as a patient, it's good to ask questions, but at the end of the day, trust your physician. The other piece I heard was documentation. Very important for providers to document accurately. And the third piece was for insurance providers put appropriate processes in place. Is that a good summary? Yeah, I mean, it, most of this can be done through electronic means where processes can be put in place in which the decision-making process should take seconds, not hours, not days, certainly not days. I think that most quality insurance companies do that. They want to minimize the hassle factor they give to the providers, but at the same time, they want to reduce that 3 to 5% of overutilization that occurs. Are there any other additional thoughts you'd have around value-based care that we haven't yet covered? Sure, I think there's there's areas I think we violate, and that is the number of prescriptions that we give to patients. Some of that is based because medical recommendations for a specific condition may have a whole variety of medications to be used. Just as an example, diabetes. Not only are we treating the blood sugars, but we're concerned about prevention of coronary artery disease, treatment of hyperlipidemia, consideration of aspirin therapy to reduce, you know, the risk of vascular obstruction. Uh, I mean, there's a whole variety of pieces to treating diabetes, and yet patient doesn't just have one condition. And so the development of polypharmacy, particularly in the geriatric age group, is a major concern. About 25% of recurrent hospitalizations are related to medications, uh, either directly or indirectly. And so the more medicines we prescribe, the number of adverse reactions increases, the number of drug interactions increases. Patients then make decisions. Uh, this medicine costs too much, or I don't feel as well when I take this medicine. So the amount of non-adherence to medication starts to go up, and that can also reduce the effectiveness of, and value of care. Patients maybe don't function as well, and they may have falls or duplicate medications when they get confused. That kind of falls in what's something we call the geriatric syndrome, where they just get confused about the medications they're taking. And of course, all these medicines cost. So it's, an, it's not a value-based or a value-added component. We have to really be careful with the number of prescriptions and the number of pres prescribed medications. And I include in that vitamins and supplements and a variety of other maybe non-prescription-based medications that add up to a whole 
bunch of things that patients are doing every day. Consider a patient that might be on 15 different pills. And some of those pills are more than one time a day to try to keep that all straight and to not have drug interactions. It's a high bar. It adds to uh, some of the failings in our healthcare system. So as people go through the medical decision-making process, what's critical, what's important along the lines of medication therapy. Are healthcare organizations doing anything today to tackle the polypharmacy issue? Well, I think that uh, insurance companies do the best they can to ask the questions why and to use ger uh, generic medications when they can. But I, I think that we all could do more in asking the questions about the number of medicines that people are on. I would say in general, there's not a there's not a continuity of care between the pharmacist and the prescribing provider in a consistent way. And so yeah, would it be better for the pharmacist to be having a direct relationship with the provider and, and adding what they can? Just taking two medications, perhaps, that could be physically combined into one. An example might be lisinopril and hydrochlorothiazide, two very common medications used for hypertension that can be put into one pill and reduce the confusion in the number of pills that patient takes. Those types of things that pharmacists can be beneficial. And yet the pharmacist lives in a different entity most of the time than the prescribing provider. And they may not ever even get to know each other except through the electronic means. So there is a gap there. And that's one thing I think we could do better. Does it have anything to do with pharmaceutical companies? It seems like they have definitely a stronghold on pushing these meds. Obviously, people are making lots of money off these drugs. Do you think pharmaceuticals is impacting this polypharmacy issue? I I, I really think that, I mean, is it an effect of marketing? Sure. But is that causing providers to make decisions to to prescribe multiple medications to patients? I I don't think so. Most of what the marketing is occurring on television and directly to physicians uh, it has to do with name brand drugs that are newer medications and very expensive medications. Uh, there's something called bioequivalents that we need to consider at a higher level uh, because they're less expensive than some of the brand name medications. Those are somewhat unique situations. And the medicine that we prescribe generally is generic and generally are meeting various criteria. I don't think that the pharmaceutical industry is the, is the big pusher here. They may influence patients, and that's why you see television ads for a variety of conditions with relatively expensive medications. That makes sense. The pharmaceutical company has impact and influence via their marketing, but they're not necessarily the cause. Yeah, I don't think they're the cause. I, I think it's it's more us. It's more the prescribing physicians. And and quite frankly, the future of healthcare uh, is going to be along the lines of, of genetic uh, sequence engineering. Many of these severe conditions, like uh, various types of cancer, uh, will be treated through genetic engineering. This is extremely expensive. And the only way that I can see that we're going to pay for this in a, in a logical way is to improve the value of care that we deliver 
so we can reduce those things which are of low value. So on the top of high value are things of low value. Uh, and so we need to kind of get rid of the things of low value to help pay for those things that are going to be so expensive in the future. As we function as providers, as we function as administrators, as consultants, to be thinking about how do we improve the value of care? How do we improve quality? How do we decrease the cost or make it more efficient? And how do we improve the value to the patients so that they can have a better outcome? Over the past 10 years, we really have not increased the life expectancy of Americans. It's flattened off. And that tells me that upward trend that we've had for the last 30 to 40 years, we're not doing something right to continue that trend. Now, some of that is due to the opioid situation, which is a low value type of care. And some of that is due to a pandemic that we had. And some of that's due to violence that's in our streets. And those aren't things necessarily that we can control in the healthcare system. But I think that we have to ask ourselves, are we actually adding the value of higher quality care and, and are our patients better off from what we're doing with all these prescriptions and all of these tests than they were before? That all comes back to medical judgment and can we do a better job? Thank you so much for sharing your insight around value-based care. This concludes today's Lean Health Tech podcast. If you're a listener and would like to hear a certain topic covered in future episodes, please let me know by leaving a review or comment. Thanks for joining and be sure to check out the next episode.